Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I, when I, I remember when I was in eighth grade, I had an assignment that was given where basically you had to interview someone who was a lot older than you and write a paper on it. And I, probably like most kids in middle school, I interviewed a grandparent. So I interviewed my grandfather, and he's still alive today. He has quite actually a fascinating story of some of the things he's done. And that, that kind of like interview thing was like the first time I learned some of his stories. So for example, uh, he's played with Elvis Presley. Uh, that's a real thing. He was, uh, my grandfather played music in Florida for a while, especially when Elvis was just starting out, and he talked about how his band was opening for Elvis, and then after the show, Elvis was like, we're going to hang out, and they were going to go jam somewhere else, and so they waited till like everyone left, and so they, they go into the parking lot to go to their cars or wherever they were, and he said people just came out like out of the woods, out of nowhere, he'd never seen anything like it, like just hounding Elvis, and so he played with Elvis. Um, he, he turned down a football scholarship to play at Florida State. Uh, Division One, which is a pretty big deal. He said back in, in those days, it wasn't quite like it is nowadays, you know, Division One football, but still pretty cool. Um, he actually coached Deion Sanders. Any football guys out here? He coached his peewee team, and he told me, or when he was, you know, bef you know, in like middle school, elementary school, and he told me that Deion Sanders was very cocky, but he was very good. And so, you know, one of the best players of all time. He also played golf with Roger Maris and Lou Gehrig. So if you're a baseball fan, particularly Yankees, again, he would play in a lot of clubs in Florida, so spring training. And so he was playing at one of the clubs that the Yankees would often go to, so he struck up some friendships. And so uh, he did all these things. And so I'm sitting here thinking, you know, today as I was reflecting on what we're going to talk about this morning, man, what am I going to tell my grandkids about things that I did? Right, like one time, you know, having this interview with my grandson, I'm like, yeah, but you're never gonna believe this. But one time there was this game called Halo and I got 25 kills in one game, right? Or like the funniest joke I ever told, we were preaching through Genesis and I pretended to put a picture of circumcision on the screen. <laughs> Right? If you were not here for that, don't worry about it. Um, or probably my proudest accomplishment a few years ago or, or a while ago, Christine and I were living in this townhome. It was an older townhome, and it was two stories, and the stairs had, like, gaps between each step. It was kind of like a weird design. And I, we had a cat, and I got my cat. I was playing with a laser pointer, and I got my cat to, like, reach his paw so far that he fell out of the stairs onto the ground. I was amazing, right? That's, just, that's what I did with my life, and so really, really uh, amazing for me, right? Now, I share that story because... Because today we are finally getting to the end of the life of Abraham. And if I were to title this sermon, it would be Lessons of Faith from Abraham. Lessons of Faith, the things that he did that we might be able to learn and apply to our lives. And so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 23. We're going to read a few sections in each of these next few chapters as we come to an end. Uh, by the time we get to the end of Abraham's story, he has taken up more than half of Genesis, which is a very significant amount of time. And so if you've been with us, at least for a while lately, we've been looking at Abraham who God called and said, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation. And out of you, uh, somehow, someway, all, uh, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. And so we've been tracing his story. Last week, we read Genesis 22, which was the testing of Abraham sacrificing Isaac and then God intervening and, and saving Isaac and providing a substitute. And we're talking about how that points us to Jesus uh, and how that, that, that Abraham passed the test of faith. And so chapter 22, leading into Riar, Abraham, again, is being told about his brother and his sister-in-law and their various offspring and relatives, um, including in this list at the end of chapter 22 is Rebecca, whom we're going to read more about today in chapter 23, which serves as a reminder for us as we're getting closer to the end of Abraham, how will God's covenant continue through Isaac, Abraham's son? 
And so now we uh, prepare to transition away from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and his wife as the story of the covenant continues. And so we'll pick it up. Genesis chapter 23. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. Genesis chapter 23, starting in verse 1. And it says this. Now, Sarah, this is Abraham's wife, lived 127 years. These were all the years of her life. Sarah died in Karath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. So, so what happens as is custom, uh, Sarah dies, Abraham weeps for her. Now, this, is what it, or this would have been an extended period of weeping and mourning for his wife. This is uh, accompanied by various practices in the ancient world. This is uh, much different than how we do it today. Typically in our culture, you have a funeral a couple of days, maybe a week after someone passes away, and that's kind of it. And you might be privately mourning, but it's kind of like public. That's kind of it. And people kind of move on from that. Uh, so this isn't like he had a funeral and moved on. Like his whole family, his whole traveling party would have taken probably at least a month to pause and to mourn. And I, and I just want to say this real quickly. Uh, you actually see this all throughout the scriptures where God's people mourn and grieve the loss of people that they care about. In fact, what the scriptures show us is what we've obviously seen in modern psychology is that extended periods of mourning are actually good and healthy. It is not a sign of weak faith. And so if you think I've gone through this hard thing, I just need to swallow it and move on and get over it and, and get better, um, that actually is a sign of an immature faith. And I, and I don't mean to be uh, condescending when I say that. In fact, if I could just say for a second, I even think telling people or asking people if they've moved on from some tragic, horrific thing they've experienced is a terrible terrible thing. Because what happens is you do not move on from a loved one. You do not move on from a diagnosis. You do not move on from a dream that dies. What happens is you move forward with what has happened, with the experiences and the loss as you go forward. And so sweeping and, and grieving the difficulties of life is a good and a godly thing. And that's what Abraham does here. And then verse 3, it says this, when Abraham got up from, the beds, uh, from beside his dead wife, he spoke to the Heathites. The Heathites are the people who are in charge of the land that he's living in right now. I'm in a, uh, verse four, I'm an alien residing among you. Give me burial property among you so that I can bury my dead. The Heathites replied to Abraham, listen to us, my Lord. You are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in our finest burial place. None of us will withhold from you this burial place for burying your dead. Now, again, if you've been with us, Abraham is quite wealthy. He's even won a couple of battles. Uh, the, the scriptures don't call him this, but really in the ancient world, he really is a king. I mean, lots of wealth, lots of people, lots of servants. No doubt the people of the land that he's living in have heard his stories, know about him. They probably have a lot of respect and reverence for this man. And for us, we have to remember that Abraham owns no land, right? He's living in this Canaanite land, what's going to be later called the promised land, but he does not own any of it. In chapter 21, we're told that he acquired some wells uh, to feed his flock and the people with him, but he actually doesn't own any land. Now, for us, I do think we need to remember, this is actually, I think, a credit to Abraham that he has not uh, forced or fought his way to acquire either, uh, any land either, which he certainly could have done. He hasn't done that. He hasn't taken anything. 
But now there is a need of a place for burial for his wife and for him and his other family. And the Heathites clearly know that Abraham has been blessed by God. And so they offer him a place, a plot of land to bury Sarah. Now, what ends up happening throughout the rest of 23 is that he ends up asking for a specific cave, a specific burial plot spot. The owner of that land initially offers it for free, but Abraham insists on paying. He doesn't want to take anything by force or by manipulation or even by money. He wants... That's not fair. He wants to give a fair value for this land. It's debated, but many scholars seem to believe he actually ends up paying a lot more than that land's actually worth. But he does so. He doesn't argue. He doesn't barter. He wants to do the right thing, which is important for us for two reasons. One, it's another example of Abraham taking nothing by force or by gift. That his point is not to conquer people or to conquer land, but he's trying to be faithful to God. And again, it's important to know he's not denying this gift out of pride. You know how sometimes someone might offer you help or assistance or a gift, and you're like, no, I can't accept that, even though like you really need it. Uh, This is not what's happening here. He's simply trying to be faithful to what God has given him. However, the second thing, and it's helpful for us to know just for context, uh, purchasing the land ensures that he and his descendants will own this burial plot in perpetuity. So what could happen in the ancient world if something was gifted to you and you didn't legally buy it and there's no legal paperwork that's drawn up, uh, it is possible for the descendants of the person who gave you that land to argue that the land is not actually yours and to acquire it back. And so by Abraham buying the land, it is legitimately his and his family's and cannot be taken from him. This also, again, begins to tie Abraham and his family to this land because at this point, they own no land. They have no real reason to stay there except God called them to it, but now they're actually tied here. Their ancestors, as we go down the line, are going to be buried here, and so they have a connection to it and a reason to return to it in the future. And so again, if I could just say this, as we're looking at the lessons of faith from Abraham, here's one of the things that we see, that faith means not using one's power or influence to manipulate. Now, I know I've kind of just did the spark note versions, kind of just give you the overview of chapter 23, but undoubtedly, as you read this text, an ancient reader would have been compelled or would have been surprised to see this, this wealthy man who we've already seen once fight some other kingdoms and win, certainly could have forced or manipulated, used his power, his influence to get something for himself, but he does not do it. He trusts the Lord. He's, got, he's made some mistakes along the way. Now he says, I'm not going to force or try to do anything that God has not given me. He does not force or use his power to manipulate. And for, for those of us that would say we're followers of Jesus here this morning, we should ask ourselves, I mean, what are the areas in our life that we're forcing? Now, I am not saying we shouldn't work hard and have dreams and pursue things, but are we doing them in a right, in a way with integrity and honor, in a way that honors the Lord, or are we trying to use our relationships, our intelligence to force or manipulate? things that God has not yet given us. Faith, Abraham shows us, means trusting in the Lord and not using your power or your influence to manipulate things to your own end. And so that's what he does. Chapter 23, he finds a place to bury his wife, Sarah. And then it says this, chapter 24 and verse 1. It says, Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. God had given Abraham everything that he promised. Verse 2, Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household who managed all he owned, place your hand under my thigh and I will have you swear by the Lord, God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. 
but go to my land and my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. In other words, don't take a wife from the people of the, of the community and the culture that we're currently living in. I want you to travel all the way back to my ancestral land where my family still resides and find a wife from Abraham for Isaac there. Now, this uh, person here, as we'll see later, um, is Elizer. This is the one that was actually going to be when Abraham had no kids and God promised him kids. He was the one that was going to take over all of Abraham's possessions if he had no children. And so this is a, essentially, if you're going to put maybe modern language on it, it's kind of like Abraham chief of staff. He runs his operations. He manages his calendar. He makes people do what Abraham wants them to do. And so he tasks him with a very significant and important task to find a wife for his son. Again, Abraham originally said uh, he would get all, uh, Eliza would get all this stuff. But again, he got married. He has a son. I need you to find a wife for my son, Isaac, so that God's covenant can continue through this family. Now, it is just helpful to note, just for, you know, context, uh, where Abraham is currently living from where he came from is about 520 miles. No cars, no airplanes. I mean, you're, most people are walking or riding a camel. This is at least a month assuming you don't get robbed and nothing, nobody gets sick, you know, your camel doesn't break his leg. This is at least a month travel from where he is to where he came from if it's a straight shot. Now, it's a long journey. It's likely too rigorous at Abraham for this point for Abraham to make the journey, which is why he asked Eliza to do it for him. And of course, he doesn't want Isaac to leave the land because if Isaac goes, finds a wife and decides to stay there, then the land that God promised, the covenant through this land won't come to fruition. And so he doesn't want Isaac to leave. Now, you, you might be asking, and I just want to point this out, uh, why would Abraham not want Isaac, his son, to marry a woman from the Canaanites? Like, what's the big deal there? Again, for us, we need to remember that the covenant blessing is with Abraham and with Abraham's family, not the Canaanites. And we've talked about the origin story of the Canaanites, some of the evil things that they have done. We've even seen some of that here, child sacrifice, uh, extreme sexual violence, like a lot of terrible things. And Abraham says he's not going to marry into this culture. It's also helpful for the later Israelites to know as they're coming into the promised land that the land that they're going to possess, they are not related to them in any way. Now, if I can just say one more thing, I know it's a lot of information, but it's just helpful to know uh, because historically, passages like this one have been used by some to argue that interracial or interethnic marriage is wrong because, again, God's original covenant was in Abraham, and he didn't want his people to marry with people that were different than them. And so I just want to say, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, I want to say this. Objectively, that is, this text has nothing at all to do with ethnicity and everything to do with covenants and worship, right? In fact, this is the same command that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul gives to believers when he warns them not to be unequally yoked in marriage, where he says, he's telling believers, do not marry someone who is not yet a follower, because if you are a follower of Jesus and you marry someone outside the faith, your faith will struggle. It will, be, it will be hard for you if you and your spouse are not on the same page with this. And of course, we'll see when Israelite, Israel gets into the promised land and they at times begin to intermarry and they begin to worship the gods of that region and they begin to make a lot of poor, bad decisions. The, the thing here is not about ethnicity. It's about, Abraham, about Isaac not falling prey to the false gods of the culture. And it's just helpful to know in the ancient world, gods were very tied to geographic regions. And so if you marry someone from the land, they're 
They're going to be worshiping these gods. They're going to be persuading you to do that as well. And the last thing I would just say, uh, there are actually, uh, there are many of what we would use with modern language, interracial marriages in the Old Testament that God calls good. So, for example, Moses, who leads the Israelites out of the Exodus, marries his wife Zipporah. She is not an Israelite. Or Ruth and Boaz. There's a whole book of the Bible about Ruth and how she met Boaz. Well, Ruth is a Moabite, and Boaz is an Israelite, and that is clearly a good thing. In fact, God, uh, Jesus, Jesus himself, comes from the line of Ruth and Boaz. King David, the, gate, the greatest king of Israel. And then Jesus comes from a woman who is not an Israelite. So it has nothing to do with ethnicity or race, racial tones here. It has to do with covenant and worship. That's why he wants him to go back home and find a wife for Isaac. And so here's how he responds. Verse 5, it says this. The servant said to him, so the servant Eliezer says to Abraham, suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me to this land. So let's say he goes down there and she doesn't want to come back with him. Should I have your son go back to the land you came from? Probably to like persuade her or to get her or to show her family that he's a real thing. This isn't like a mail order bride. Like a, this isn't like a catfishing scheme. Like he, I exist and I want this to happen. Verse six, Abraham answered him, make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give you this land to your offspring where Abraham is currently living. He will send his angel before you and you can take a wife for my son there. But then he says this, verse eight, if, there, if the woman is unwilling to follow you, then you are free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. So the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Again, it's really easy for us to skip over what's happening here. What Abraham is asking his servant to do and not to do is an extreme example of faith and trust in God. This is faithfulness on Abraham's part. Again, he doesn't force God's hand here. He doesn't make God, make Elijah try to manipulate the situation. If he can't find someone to come back with him to marry Isaac, he asks Elijah to go find a wife for Isaac. But if she refuses to come, Elijah is free from his oath. Well, in other words, what, what Abraham is essentially saying here is God's going to have to do this. God is going to have to provide. If Eliezer cannot find a wife who will come back or her family won't let him come back to marry Isaac, then Isaac still cannot come back. Even if this means Abraham has absolutely no idea how the covenant is going to continue, if Isaac does not have a wife and children with her, uh, because that has to happen for this covenant to continue through Isaac's offspring, Abraham, again, does not want to take by force or make his plans happen if God will not provide. He has come a, an extremely long way since we first met him. This is incredible trust here. Again, everything that Abraham has done up until this point is that God, following God, trusting the Lord, that he will make a great nation from him. But if his own son doesn't have, get married and have children, that is in jeopardy. And so to be fair, again, I don't think Eliza is trying to tempt Abraham into unfaithfulness when he says, well, should I come back with Isaac or not if, if, a, if the wife doesn't come with me? I think he's just trying to figure out like, what are we going to do if I can't find someone? But again, perhaps after years and decades of experience, Abraham says no. He says, no shortcuts, no manipulation. My family is staying here, and we're going to trust the Lord. In fact, one of the other lessons of faith from Abraham we can see in this text is this, and that is that faith resists shortcuts to obedience as shortcuts often lead to disobedience. 
Faith resists shortcuts to obedience because shortcuts often lead to disobedience. We've already seen this happen multiple times with Abraham. If you've been with us through this, um, when Abraham first moves to the land of Canaan, then there's a severe famine. Instead of staying in the land and trusting the Lord, he goes to Egypt. Right? He doesn't trust that God will provide. And again, I think in his mind, he's saying, well, I don't think God, this is going to work out. And so I don't think he's like trying to manipulate God. He's just like, well, this isn't going to happen the way that I thought it was going to happen. So I'm going to try to make it happen another way. Uh, we've seen twice already that when Abraham entered into a foreign land, his wife, Sarah, he says, this is my sister because he's afraid for his life. And sexual dominance was a thing in the ancient world. And so if saying, instead of saying, this is my wife and trusting the Lord to protect them, he says, it's my sister and kind of gives his wife away until something bad that happens, and they, they find out that, Abra- that Sarah is actually married to Abraham, and so he, he doesn't do that. Uh, we read uh, the taking of Hagar, uh, Sarah's servant, having his son Ishmael through her, because Abraham and Sarah up until that point have not had children. They assume, especially in their context, that this is what you're supposed to do. God said I was going to have a kid. It happened through Sarah, so I'm going to have someone else have my kind of surrogate child for me. There have been many times where he's, again, I think trying to figure out what God wants, but not being trying to face it, trying to force it, takes a shortcut, and it leads to disobedience. And so I want to say this just for us. Maybe you're struggling with something. You're trying to think through something. Uh, Sometimes it isn't that our intentions are necessarily bad. Maybe God is leading you somewhere, or you think he's asking you to do something, but you're not sure how it's going to work out. It's not that our intentions are bad, but it can be hard to resist trying to think of an alternate option if the way you think it's supposed to happen isn't actually happening. Again, Abraham and our mistakes often happen because we are not waiting on God. Because waiting on God is hard. Rating on God is hard. Faith resists shortcuts to obedience, as shortcuts often lead to disobedience. And this time Abraham says, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to trust the Lord. Which also means this. Here's what we also see. That faith is trusting God to provide. It's trusting God to provide, and not your intellect, not your relational connections, not your bank account, not your smarts, but it is God. That faith at its core, again, if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, that your faith is that everything that Jesus particularly says is true, everything he said and did is true and will be true. That he is over all things, that he is the way for us to the Father, that through Jesus, uh, not our effort or trying really hard or trying to clean ourselves up, but it's through Jesus and his life and his death and his sacrifice, that is how we experience the kingdom of God. That is how we are saved. Not by our self. Faith, faith is trusting that God, what he said, did happen, will happen, has happened, and he's the one that will provide. He's trusting God. Again, it's not not working hard. It's not not having dreams. It's doing all these things at the same time as submitting yourself to the Lord. Faith is trusting God to provide, which is what Abraham is doing in a way that I think is in some ways hard for us to fully appreciate or understand. But that's what he says. Go down there, find a wife. If someone will not come back for you, I'm not sure what's going to happen, but we're going to trust the Lord on this. And so here's what happens. Verse 10, chapter 24. The servant took 10 of his master's camels and with all kinds of his master's goods uh, in hand, he went to Aram Naharam to Nahor's town. This is uh, Nahor was Abraham's uncle. So the family there at the evening, the time when the women went out to draw water, he made the camels kneel beside a well outside the town. So he travels the 500 plus mile journey and he finally gets there. Verse 12, Lord God made the, or Lord God of my master Abraham, he prayed, 
Make this happen for me today and show my kindness to my master, Abraham. I am standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink, and who responds, drink, and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master." Now, you might be familiar with this story. He asks, you know, he's asking God for a sign, essentially. Um, what, what is helpful to understand, however, in this story is how massive of a request Eliza is making here. We, again, don't really draw water and go camel, lead camels 500 plus miles. So it's hard for us to understand what he's asking. This is a massive request. Okay, so it was commonplace in the ancient world when you were traveling through and you come to a well to ask a stranger permission from the town to, from the, permission from the town to draw water from the well. That is a normal thing. It was hospitality. It was survival. Uh, there's no gas stations. There's no McDonald's drive throughs There's no hotels, really. Like, you are dependent on the hospitality of others to care for you. And so you would do the same if you had foreigners traveling through your land, typically speaking. And so you would expect, or at least assume, that the women drawing the waters would oblige your request because that's what people do. Um, what isn't normal, however, is for someone to then, on their own accord, offer to draw water for a stranger's camel as well. And certainly not 10 of them. Certainly not 10 of them. So again, just for context, a camel that has gone a few days without water can drink as much as 25 gallons. So you drink as much as 25 gallons. Um, ancient jars for drawing water usually had held around three gallons per jar at most. And so this offer by this woman involves perhaps 80 to 100 additional drawings from the well. And remember, Eliza didn't ask for her to water his camels. She offered it. He prayed that this would be a sign, but, but she offered it, right? This is something that I think we have a hard time understanding. How big of a request this is? Like, I, I was thinking to myself, have you ever had a time in your life where you did something, or rather you asked somebody for help for something, and you were just naive to, like, how much effort it took that person or how much time it took that person to help you? And maybe later on you're like, I can't believe I asked that. Like, I think of, so for example, New City, our logo, which I, I like our logo. I think it, it's pretty cool. When we planted years ago, we had a family friend who was a graphic designer. It's her job. She's really good at it. And she she said she would love to make the, you know, help to make the logo for the church. And so I'm like, great. And so she, <laughs> well, I think about this now, I'm like, oh my goodness. She made 12 logos, like 12. And uh, that's, that's a lot. And she, so she made 12 logos. And then I did this thing where I like got feedback from people. And then I was like, and then like we whittled it down and she like edited designs. At the end of the day, she made over 25 logos before we settled on the one that we wanted. And that was before she had to add color to it. So they're all black and white logos, and you added colors. I mean, I don't know how many hours she spent, but I was like, here's this. Okay, how about tweak this? Here's what I want to say. Now let's try this over and over. And I think about it now. I'm like, man, how many hours did she spend on this completely for free? Completely for free. That's kind of what's happening here. Like, it's, this is a ridiculous offer by this woman. However, this such an unbelievable proposal would indicate that God is working. 
Because Eliezer isn't just attempting to identify certain qualities in a potential bride here. He wants God to show and provide. It would be one thing if he was like, okay, have her wear a purple gown or a red dress or whatever. Like, there's likely somebody going to be wearing something like that. What he is asking here is almost impossible. And his job and his goal and his desire is to find a wife for Isaac. And so he's not asking like something that is going to be fulfilled. He's asking something that's very likely not being fulfilled, but he wants to be clear that God has provided. What he's asking is so abnormal and so outrageous. If it happens, it's almost as if God clearly has spoken. And so to his delight, this woman actually does everything he prayed would happen. And so it says this in verse 15, before he had finished speaking, there was Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, and wife of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now, the girl was very beautiful, a virgin. No man had been intimate with her. In other words, she also was not uh, promised or was not betrothed or engaged to anyone else either. She went down to the spring, filled her jug, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, "Uh, Please let me have a little water from your jug. She replied, Drink, my lord. She quickly lowered her jug to her hand and gave to him a drink. Verse 19, when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they've had enough to drink. She quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. She drew water for all his camels, while the men silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. And so again, I just put your mind for a second in that of Eliza. You have a significant task ahead of you. You've traveled over a month, over 500 miles, you probably think this all could be for nothing. I mean, this is a ton of work for potentially nothing to work out. You don't know. At least 30, 25-ish, 30 days, wondering this entire time, and this is all for nothing. And then God, you ask God to do something quite impossible, quite unthinkable, to show him who Isaac might marry, and everything has happened. Everything has happened. I mean, this is a massive deal. And so everything happens as you you would want it. And here's what happens next in the story. He eventually gives her two very expensive bracelets. Um, He asks her whose daughter she is and if there is room for him to spend the night with her family. She tells him who her family is. And so she identifies that she is uh, related to Abraham. She says there's plenty of room for him and his camels and his traveling party. Uh, And then he responds by worshiping God due to his kindness. And I don't know if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, if there's ever been times in your life where God just does something absolutely amazing and you can't do anything but worship. Uh, like I think for us, for, for a couple of years, Christine and I were trying to move and we moved into a house about a year, a little over a year ago at the last May. And even to this day, there was so many things that happened like perfectly for like, we shouldn't have gotten the house that we got it. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Like there, we just shouldn't have done it. And even today, when I think about the store, I'm like, man, God and his kindness. Or I think of this building, like one of my favorite stories of new cities that we moved into this building the week before COVID and our rent more than doubled and we had to close it down. And like, how in the world are we going to pay for this? And what are we going to do? And I'm like, well, I guess I'll get another job and just like, start over and we'll just meet my house on Sundays and whoever wants to come will come. Like, I'm like, I'm like, how do you sign a contract as a church and then like, uh, and then right away say, I can't do this. Like, I'm, I don't know what's going to happen. But God has kindness through the generosity of, of many of you provided. And I think about those moments and I can't help but be in awe and amazed of what God has done. This is what Eliza does here. And so he goes to her house. He meets her family. He meets her father. He recounts to her his prayer and how everything happened the way that he asked for it to happen. He's invited to stay. And then the long story short, they agree to allow Rebecca to go back to, with, uh, with this guy to uh, marry Isaac. 
It's a massive deal. They agree to all of this. Uh, he gives essentially a, a bride price to her father. And so he, that's part of the reason why he brings so many camels and so many expensive things. Uh, they stay 10 more days. And then she goes back with Eliza and his men back to the land of Abraham and Isaac. And then if you look down to verse 61, here's what it says. Then Rebekah and her female servants got up, mounted the camels, and followed the man. She, uh, so the servant took Rebekah and left. Now Isaac was returning from Beer Laha Roy, for he was living in the Negev region. In the early evening, Isaac went out to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is the man in the field coming to meet us? The servant answered, It is my master. So she took her veil, covered herself. Then the, servant Isaac, then the servant told Isaac everything he had done, the prayer, the plan, all the stuff that had happened. Verse 67, and Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and took Rebekah to be his wife. Isaac loved her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. And so basically what's happening here by putting on a veil, it's what you would do in the preparation for a wedding. Now, it's not necessarily saying they got married like right there on the spot, but probably soon, probably pretty quickly, maybe within a few days or a few weeks of her arrival, they get married. And here, Rebecca is meant to be seen as the, as the matriarch. As they are married, God provides as she moves into the tent of Sarah. Isaac and Sarah are now going to become the leading figures of this covenantal promise. So, so they get married. It leads us to chapter 25. It's the end of Abraham's life. Uh, we are told that he takes another wife after his wife Sarah dies. He has other children through her, so he actually has more children. And while Abraham provided and gave gifts to these sons, like he did Ishmael, they were eventually sent eastward away from Isaac as the inheritance and the covenantal promise is going to come through Isaac. And then it says this, the last section we'll read, chapter 25, starting in verse 7. It says this, this is the length of Abraham's life, 175 years. He took his breath, last breath and he died at a good old age, old and contented, and he was gathered to his people. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hethite. So the same field that Sarah was buried in, now Abraham as well. Verse 10, this was the field that Abraham bought from the Hethites. Abraham was buried there with his wife, Sarah. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son, Isaac, who lived near Beer Lahai Roy. And so we, we come to the end of Abraham. He dies. And then the next few verses give the lineage of Ishmael, his other son. But notice here, it says Isaac and Ishmael are reunited for the first time at the burial of their father. And as for Abraham, he does what? He finishes well. For all his faults and mistakes and missteps, he does what I think all of us hope for for us and for our ending, that we might finish well. This is the way to end. He passed the test with Isaac. He trusts the Lord to find a wife for Isaac. And so if I could maybe put all, like some all of this up, like what Grandpa Abraham shows us and teaches, about, teaches us about life, if we could interview him, I think here's one of the things that he would say to us, and that's this, that we can remain faithful to God because he will always remain faithful to us. You and I can trust, walk with, and remain faithful to the Lord because he will always remain faithful to us. Not only was Abraham faithful in this story here, 
But so was God, that God did everything that he promised Abraham, even in the times when Abraham blew it, it was not faithful and did not trust him. God did it all. And so the covenant will continue through Isaac because of God's faithfulness, because of God's love and his grace. He is faithful to the end. And of course, this points us towards Jesus, the ultimate promise of when God said, I will bless all the nations through your offspring. What he's saying is that there will one day be a Messiah Savior who will do for all of us what we could not do for ourselves through our efforts and our trying hard, our trying to measure up and trying to be a good person, whatever that standard might be is for you, is that none of that is what redeems us. None of that is what saves us. It is God's faithfulness. The fact that he will never turn his back, that he always welcomes us in. No matter what mistakes, missteps, or failures you and I have made in our life, he is always faithful. Listen, Abraham ends well. God is kind to him, but there were many times in his life where he was not faithful and God was still there. And so listen, as we close this morning, I'm not sure where you are, what you're going through right now, what you're experiencing, but you and I need to know and need to remember that God loves us, God cares for us, and he is faithful. And that Jesus shows us no matter who you are or what you have done, at any point, you and I can turn in repentance and faith and experience the grace and the mercy of God. Even in our mistakes, even in our failures, even in our doubts, right here today, not after we figure everything out, but right here today, you and I can experience the faithful love and grace of Jesus. That's why he came.